0: I'm Shelley Schlender for the KGNU science show, How on Earth. Here's an extended interview with medical doctor and expert on aging, Ron Rosedale. He discusses a study released in early January 2013 that's tempting some people to throw out any plans for losing their holiday weight. The study, by scientists at the Centers for Disease Control, was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association it compared people's body mass index, or BMI, with whether or not these people were still alive a few years later. Based on that BMI comparison, the researchers concluded that you're more likely to live longer if you're pleasingly plump, have love handles, or in other ways are fairly chubby. Some experts call this study proof that being heavier is healthier. Some call this the most confusing study of the year. For a closer look at it, here's an analysis from medical doctor and researcher on aging, Ron Rosedale. He begins by saying these findings about BMI are not at all new. A study from 2006 had similar results, but Ron Rosedale says that study from six years ago led to better recommendations.
1: The study that's being discussed now in JAMA is not a new study, and it's not new information at all, but has been rehashed by the medical community already very, very extensively. This is the study. It It was first published in The Lancet in 2006, and it's entitled Association of Body Weight with Total Mortality and with Cardiovascular Events in Coronary Artery Disease, a Systematic Review of Cohort Studies. In other words, exactly like the current study in question did.
0: The current study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, you're saying, is very similar to this older study that was done by the British journal The Lancet. Both are highly regarded journals. That's
1: correct. And this one was headed up by uh, a group of scientists and doctors by Francisco Lopez Jimenez. The findings, I'll just quote the findings, said we found 40 studies with 250, 152 patients that had a mean follow-up of three to eight years, patients with a low body mass index had an increased relative risk for total mortality. In other words, they used the same statistical criteria also. It was a retrospective study that kind of compiled a bunch of other studies, and then they looked at relative risk of BMI as a marker for obesity. Those with a low body mass, in other words, skinny people, had an increased relative risk for total mortality. If you were
0: skinny three to eight years before the end of this study, you were more likely to die.
1: Correct, and they found that overweight, as indicated by a BMI of between 25 and 29.9, 30 is considered obese, had the lowest risk for total mortality and cardiovascular mortality compared with people with a normal BMI. Obese patients, those with a BMI between 30 and 35, had no increased risk for total mortality. Patients with severe obesity, in other words, a BMI greater than or equal to 35, did not have increased total mortality, but they had the highest risk of cardiovascular mortality. The findings in this study were almost identical to the findings in the current JAMA study.
0: And this other study was in 2006, so it was...
1: Six years ago. But here is the big difference. The interpretation, in other words, their conclusion. This is the author's conclusion right off the bat. And I'll just, again, read that verbatim. The better outcomes for cardiovascular and total mortality seen in the overweight and mildly obese groups could not be explained by adjustment for confounding factors. These findings could be explained by the lack of discriminatory power of body mass index to differentiate between body fat and lean mass. Their conclusion is correct. The current conclusion didn't didn't say this. It left it to an editorial in JAMA. Some other people have mentioned it. But this was already mentioned by the authors of the 2006 study. Basically what this shows is not that being fat is protective at all. What it shows is that using body mass index as an index of obesity is faulty. And after 2006 and after this study and other studies similar, there were a number of articles, a number of studies subsequently that talked about BMI not being a valid measurement of obesity and that it should be dropped altogether and that one should use more valid indicators of health and and obesity, such as just measuring your waist circumference, or better yet, waist-to-hip ratio. This was widely discussed in the medical literature. So why they're going back to studies using BMI is, to me, an indication of a far greater disease in medicine itself. And that is that medicine hates change. It seems that medicine would rather allow people to continue to get faulty information, continue to be unhealthy, and even continue to die than admit that they had made a mistake for decades.
0: Well, let's look at this a little bit more in terms of what you mean when you say that this 2006 study warned that BMI does not Take, make a difference between lean body mass and fat mass, is this the Arnold Schwarzenegger problem, that Arnold Schwarzenegger is so muscly, he weighs a lot for his height, and so he comes across just in terms of the scale as being obese, but really he's full of muscle.
1: Yeah, exactly. It doesn't differentiate between muscle or fat. You know, certain athletes will have a higher BMI than would historically been considered healthy, but it also, importantly, doesn't differentiate between where that fat is. If that fat is subcutaneous, pear shape, you know, where women put it on their hips, but it's really subcutaneous fat.
0: It's underneath your skin, but it's in front of your muscle.
1: Right, and not visceral, meaning in your belly.
0: When you say in your belly, it's not the belly fat that you could grab that's under your skin. It's You're talking about the belly fat that would be inside of your body, underneath the muscle, surrounding your body organs?
1: Yes, surrounding the viscera, as you mentioned, your body organs, so surrounding and in particular uh, permeating the liver.
0: Well, is this the kind of fat that is the man, for instance, who has a barrel-shaped tummy, but if you pat that tummy, it feels kind of strong and hard because there's not so much fat on the outside because most of the fat is on the inside underneath the
1: muscle? That's correct. And we know it's been really shown very, very convincingly that when one has significant visceral fat, especially uh, liver fat or so-called fatty liver, that it indicates relatively severe disease and is a very powerful risk factor. I wouldn't even say a risk factor, although it's called a risk factor. It's actually uh, a disease itself. And so what it indicates is that your body is failing to understand where to put the fat. So it puts it in essentially all the wrong places. Whereas if you were to accumulate excess fat, it's in certain circumstances highly advantageous to store fat. In our historic ancestral history, it was quite important to... Store extra energy in the form of fat when food was in abundance, so that you could call upon that those energy reserves uh, when food was scarce. Another example would be bears who hibernate, uh, eat a lot in the in the fall, and eat a lot of berries, and they get fat, but it's subcutaneous fat, and they can then call upon that fat while they're hibernating, and they have a very low incidence of uh, cardiovascular disease so that type of fat doesn't cause disease.
0: Well Ron Rosedale are you saying then that somebody could have a fairly high percentage of body fat but if it's stored on the hips or if it's stored in other places on the body where it's above the muscle layer just below the skin it's probably not going to be a health problem for that person or at least not as much of one.
1: That's correct because it actually indicates that the body knows what it's doing, that there's proper communication. That's where one is supposed to store fat. One is supposed to store fat underneath the skin when you have energy in abundance. And that's a, a, a safe place to store it. It doesn't really do harm there. And really, it's actually a different organ. If you really want to look at it from a physiologic sense, subcutaneous fat uh, is different. We have one word for fat, it's fat. But we know now that there are different types of fat. We know, for instance, there's brown fat, which is so-called thermogenic; It uh, emits a lot of heat, and uh, humans have it to a small extent. Rodents have it to a fairly large extent. But the fat that is in the viscera is a different kind of fat than the fat that is subcutaneous. And the fat that's in the viscera produces a lot more hormones and a lot of inflammatory chemicals, and there's a lot of... Uh, talk and study, uh, and and rightly so, about the contribution of chronic inflammation to chronic disease, and a lot of that chronic inflammation uh, is initiated by fat, which is initiated by high levels of a very powerful metabolic hormone called leptin, and we know that when leptin is not being signaled properly, the, the brain then ceases to understand that the body has An appropriate amount of fat and it actually thinks you're too skinny and then it causes you to be hungry and store more fat for potential times of of famine and times of need, even though you have a lot of fat. In other words, there's a disconnect then between the body and the brain. But more importantly, we know now that when there is that disconnect between the leptin being produced by fat that's trying to tell your brain how much fat you've got and your brain can't hear it, The more devastating results of this is not just that a person gets fat, but that a person gets fat in in the wrong places, such as visceral fat that then produces a lot of uh, inflammation. Then you get into this vicious cycle of disease that perpetuates the disease.
0: If visceral fat is the dangerous kind of fat and subcutaneous fat is not, you mentioned that measuring your waist-to-hip ratio is one clue about whether you're in the safe zone or not with your fat. Is there some ballpark for what kind of ratio you should look at between your waist and your hips?
1: Yeah, again, what's interesting about the current article is that it's not new, that they're still even talking about BMI as a potential marker of obesity, which has been you know, really shown pretty convincingly that it's a very poor marker. So subsequent to the 2006 article and other articles like it that then really kind of poo-pooed BMI as a very valid marker of obesity, and they started using waist circumference and waist-to-hip ratio, there are certain standards that have been set up. Those you know, Standards are, for men, a ratio of above 1 is considered into a higher risk of increased visceral fat and therefore risk of disease.
0: For men, that means that if your waist is no larger than your hips, you're probably in a good place. And where exactly should you measure that? Should you measure that at a bikini line, or should you measure it above your navel?
1: The largest circumference.
0: Uh Oh, so instead of saying, well, I'm going to put it where my belt fits the best, underneath my belly, measure the biggest part of the belly.
1: Measure your biggest part of the belly, and then measure the biggest part of your hips. And then for women, above 0.8
0: the waist should be about 80% of the size of the hips in terms of the size or less. And where should women measure that? Should they measure it above their belly or should they measure it below their belly where their abdomen pooches out the most? I think
1: it should be measured where the abdomen comes out the greatest and, and again, where the hips are the, the largest.
0: So don't use measuring up above or below the navel a certain amount. Just go ahead and admit this is where I'm the biggest and measure there.
1: Yep, that's correct
0: that's so unfortunate, (laughs) is going to put their waist-to-hip circumference in a much less benign light than most people would like.
1: That's correct. But the truth uh, is never bad. You have to use the truth, especially when it comes to health.
0: The truth may not ever be bad, but it can be very disconcerting.
1: Well, it can if it is viewed that way, but a different sort of perception, view it as causing the freedom then to make appropriate changes. that have to know that there's a problem first before you make a change.
0: Now, so we've been talking about the side of how you may be able to determine whether your body fat is in a safe place and in a safe amount. But what about the other side of this new study that said that people who are thin are more likely to die? That implies that Right now, after the holidays, when people generally have put on at least a little bit of weight, instead of trying to get down to a thinner weight, they should celebrate and be glad that they're more pleasingly plump. Mm. What do you think about that?
1: I think that the entire study needs to be thrown away because it uses an invalid measurement of obesity, which is BMI. The study itself and any conclusions that one can draw from it are irrelevant. That's all I can really say about this particular study it doesn't show that being skinny is beneficial or harmful. It doesn't really show anything. However, that being said, I wouldn't say that being particularly skinny is is advantageous. certainly wasn't advantageous to our ancestors, where if a a skinny person then encountered a famine, which was an almost certainty at some point, that person would have less likelihood of surviving. The endeavor to have eight percent body fat for instance uh like a marathon runner is a very poor endeavor for health over exercising can be is is quite common actually Uh, this country probably has more health clubs i think it does i think it's a statistical uh, truth that we have far more health clubs per capita than any other country on earth and yet certainly is not reflected in our health it's really very hard to find even animal studies that show that increasing exercise promotes longevity. You have to look deeper. You have to look at what is actually controlling the fat. You have to look at the metabolic hormones. You have to look at the communication. I think we've said relatively frequently uh, on this show that health is going to be determined by the communication of 15 trillion cells, So they can act collectively and harmoniously as one. Disease and health are going to be determined by the communication among the different cells. And the majority of that communication are mediated through hormones. And of those hormones, the ones that regulate metabolism to me are the most important. Metabolism can be defined as the biochemistry that turns food into life. And that's extremely important. And when you have proper metabolic chemistry, you will continue to live in a healthy manner as much as possible.
0: Well, Ron Rosedale, can someone have proper metabolic signaling and be thin or be fat and be healthy as long as their metabolic signaling is good? Yes. So when you look at somebody and they look like a model from Shape Magazine or they look like a weightlifter who is fit because they're also a runner, or you look at somebody who is the size of, say, Oprah Winfrey. You say that any of those people could be healthy, but you need to look deeper.
1: That's correct. And they could be healthy. They might not. There are certain, uh, um, you know, certain factors that one could look at a person and kind of guess that they're probably not so healthy. Uh, certainly in the, in the overly obese or those ones that are obviously so-called apple-shaped, you can pretty much guess that their metabolic hormones are a little bit out of whack or they wouldn't be storing so much uh, belly fat. Uh, the harder determination, I think, would be those that are relatively skinny because we know that skinny people can be, uh, for instance, insulin resistant. Uh, we know that. we know. Skinny people can can have diabetes. Certainly lots and lots of skinny people have died of heart attacks. Uh, many runners have died of heart attacks. Uh, many skinny people will acquire cancer. And in fact, when people have cancer, they become skinny. So certainly being skinny is not a on of being healthy and, and often far from it.
0: Well, if somebody has tuberculosis, if someone has HIV AIDS, Three to eight years before they die, are they likely to be thinner?
1: Yes, certainly. Almost any sickness will cause a person to essentially start disappearing their life as it, as it gets sucked out of them.
0: Did this study take into account those kind of major chronic and deadly diseases when it was looking at BMI, this recent study?
1: No, it just looked at BMI. It, it really didn't account for much anything else, which is why I say it's really okay you know, they wanted to do it. I'm not sure the real purpose. It was it made headlines, as I mentioned, in 2005 and 2006, after which they really looked at the studies that correlated BMI with mortality and pretty much concluded that it wasn't the obesity that was lending a protective effect, it was the invalidity of BMI as a marker of health and obesity. And yet here again, six years later, they do the same thing. I don't know why. I don't understand it, but you see that so often in medicine, they just have such a hard time of letting go with paradigms that are obviously false. I mean, you see it with cholesterol. I mean, this cholesterol myth has been going around for half a century and that's, a a really, really devastating myth that keeps being perpetuated because there's so much money behind it, all the cholesterol-lowering drugs. And and more and more and more and more and more studies are are coming out to show the very adverse effects of cholesterol-lowering, and in particular, cholesterol-lowering drugs. And yet they continue to hang on to it. But you see the same thing with taking calcium, for instance. And we've done interviews on the detriments of uh, increasing serum calcium. Uh, You see the same thing with the perpetuation of saying that eating fat makes you fat, which is totally untrue. It's the inability to burn fat that makes you fat. There are just so, so many myths in medicine that continue on and on and on that to me is, is very, very disconcerting and is really the major underlying story of this article
0: you feel like they have put a lot of time and money into something that isn't really worth analyzing anyway.
1: Well, it's already been analyzed. Had it not already been very much looked at half a decade ago and analyzed and, and scrutinized over by many, many experts who almost uniformly concluded now that BMI is just really not a great measure of obesity. And yet they continue to come out with with uh, stuff like this that adds to people's confusion and actually causes far more harm than good.
0: Well, Ron Rosedale, I gather that you're suggesting that instead of stepping on the scales and using that as a major marker for health, people might be better off if they get out a tape measure and measure the widest part of their belly and tummy and abdomen and then measure the widest part of their hips and see whether for men it's a one-to-one ratio or less. And for women, it's a 0.8 to one ratio with their waist being a little smaller than their hips. And that would be a better way to tell how their health is doing.
1: That would be a far better way than BMI. And then one can go a step further and understand what actually controls the weight to hip ratio. And these would be metabolic hormones. A person can easily have their leptin measured. It's not routinely done. They'll go and have their cholesterol measured instead. And yet, uh, leptin is a far more significant factor in future health risk. How well the body is able to listen to leptin as indicated by just a fasting serum leptin level, which is very simple, no harder than measuring cholesterol and not much more expensive.
0: So you'd rather see people have that as one of their standard measures that is done, their leptin level?
1: Should be done in everybody. There's so much science now that shows the, the critical importance of leptin In a roundabout way, this study supports it too, showing that it isn't just obesity that matters. Even if BMI was correct, it's how you get fat. So let's say that BMI was correct. And let's say that this study was valid, which it's not, but let's say it is. What it shows then is that just being obese is not what causes disease. There's something else. It's not the fact that that you were overweight or that you were obese, but how you got there. Did you get there because your leptin wasn't being heard properly or insulin wasn't being heard properly? Then you're in trouble. If you got there just because you overate and it got stored appropriately without impacting insulin or leptin, then you're probably not really going to be in, in harm's way so much.
0: Well, let's look at this idea of testing leptin. Leptin is a hormone that the body makes, and there are other hormones that the body makes that will vary depending on whether you've eaten a meal or not, and what you've eaten in that meal. Insulin's a great example of that, where for some people, their insulin level seems normal when they have not eaten. But if they eat, say, a piece of bread, or if they drink a soda, their insulin level may go sky high. And so something about what somebody eats reveals more about how insulin is working in their body than just doing a fasting test, a a test without eating anything, to check the insulin level. Is leptin similar? Is it something where it goes up and down depending on what someone's doing? Or is it a little bit more stable and easy to tell what's happening with it simply by checking it when you haven't had anything to eat all night and you go in and getting a fasting leptin
1: level? Leptin also varies by what you eat. Perhaps not quite as dramatically and as quickly as insulin. But within 12 hours, uh, leptin will also go up perhaps 50% or so, depending on what a person ate. It isn't just so much the so-called postprandial levels of these hormones, the after-eating levels. If your levels continue to go high, they continue to so-called spike after numerous meals, you know, after eating, let's say, you know, weeks and months and years and decades of a high-carbohydrate diet that are known to dramatically increase insulin and also increase leptin. By constantly increasing the levels of these hormones, it kind of uh, deadens the cell's ability to listen to those hormones, kind of like being in a smelly room pretty soon, you can't smell it. And So as cells are constantly flooded by high levels of insulin and leptin, over time, years and and decades perhaps, they cease to to properly hear the volume of signal that these hormones are trying to give, and so that uh, previously, for instance, a a, a relatively low level of leptin would signal the brain to say that you've got enough fat storage you should stop being hungry and you should stop accumulating more over time the hypothalamus in the brain which is a very critical area can't hear it properly and so it no longer stops being hungry It no longer stops making fat and instead it it tells you to be hungry to make more fat and stop burning the fat that you've got which is a faulty message and so it those constant spikes lead to so-called hormonal resistance, leads to insulin resistance, and leads to leptin resistance. And those underlie virtually all of the chronic diseases of aging, and it's known now even to accelerate the rate of aging. And you can measure just, you can have a a really good idea as to a person's level of insulin and leptin resistance just by doing a fasting insulin and leptin. You don't even have to do it after eating. So if you have a high fasting insulin, and or a high fasting leptin, it indicates that you are not properly listening to those signals.
0: If somebody has a high fasting level of either of those hormones, that would be a good test for them to do to get more information about how their body fat is helping or hurting their health. With insulin, if somebody wants to see if they have a hidden insulin problem, meaning that their insulin either doesn't rise enough when they eat something starchy or it rises too much, then that's a fairly quick spike. That happens within a few minutes of eating or within an hour or two. But what about leptin? If you were wondering if you had a hidden problem with how leptin is responding to food, how long would you need to wait?
1: Probably 8 eight to 12 hours. So it would be a little bit harder to measure in the office, whereas you can do a so-called insulin tolerance test where you feed somebody high-carbohydrate food or Pure glucose, if you wanted, and then you can measure serial insulin values every 30 minutes or so for a few hours. That's more difficult to do with leptin, and therefore it's not done. Uh, but you know, we can even take baby steps and just measure it to begin with. You know, nobody's even measuring, I shouldn't say nobody, some people. I know I first started talking about the importance of leptin maybe eight years ago, it still isn't being used routinely. It took perhaps 20 years. when I started talking about insulin, for insulin to to be measured even by a a small percentage of doctors. But at least that is being done, not certainly routinely, but uh, at least it's being thought about and talked about. So it's really the underlying problem that I mentioned to begin with. It takes so long for for medicine to advance, really, uh, especially when it, we, uh, when it entails kind of an about-face from previous recommendations. You just don't want to get it wrong. It's the environment we live in. Not only is it an ego problem, but it's a legal problem. You know, they don't want to get sued.
0: Well, and so with all, all of that in mind, we have this study that has this puzzling result that may not have much helpfulness behind it that... The BMI of a person is not as linked to health as most people have been told for a long time. You've said that measuring your waist-to-hip ratio is a better way to measure it, along with getting fasting levels of hormones such as insulin and leptin. If somebody was skeptical and they didn't think that those were quite good enough, could they hire somebody to do an MRI scan of their entire body to see where their fat is?
1: Yeah, certainly There's a there are more advanced ways of uh, measuring both fat percentage and location of fat, and certainly that's one of them. Uh, If a person wanted to go to that trouble and expense, it would certainly be fine with me. It's not totally necessary though, because I still think that you have to look at the underlying cause of any problem. So let's say you did get an MRI of your fat and you found that you did have fatty liver, which is now fortunately being looked at more and more, you still have to know what's causing it. When a person has uh, so-called a diagnosis of of fatty liver, that's not the disease. The disease would be what's causing that fatty liver. So you have to then understand that, again, the problem is always going to narrow down to a problem in communication. And that generally means a problem in communication of hormones. And so you'd still then have to look at how insulin is being measured or how it, how insulin is being signaled. You have to look at how leptin is being signaled. So why don't you just start there?
0: Are you a thin person or a fat person?
1: Oh, probably neither. Probably medium build. Don't have very much fat. I don't think most people would call me fat at all. I'm not skinny either. So I have kind of a medium build, I suppose.
0: You wouldn't worry too much if you weighed more as long as your waist-to-hip ratio was fine or that you weighed less that wouldn't trouble you one way or the other
1: oh, no not particularly i would actually far prefer just to see a low fasting insulin left and leptin and blood sugar
0: it sounds so simple that way it is simple For, forget about what people see in magazines forget about what kind of other advice people get just look at those simple things and ask your doctor to give you a bit more unusual test than they normally do. Or you can buy it online at this point. You can buy a leptin test or an insulin test online yourself, I think for about somewhere between 50 and $80. So it's not totally inexpensive, but it's not totally expensive either.
1: It really behooves people to take control of their own health. Unfortunately, the medical profession is under control of large corporations that really don't have people's health as their primary interest.
0: Have you seen some studies that indicate that the waist-to-hip ratio is a great predictor of longevity?
1: It's a good predictor. Uh, there are some studies that show that it, it does predict longevity to some extent. I wouldn't say it's a great predictor, but it's certainly a, uh, a better predictor. At least it goes in the right direction as opposed to BMI studies.
0: Do you carry a tape measure in your pocket? No, I don't.
1: <laughs> Although, when I was seeing patients, I, I did definitely, and this was a long time ago, maybe a, well over a decade now, uh, we were measuring waist to hip ratio.
0: Are people comfortable with that? Because one discussion has been that BMI tends to be maintained as a measurement because it's less. Invasive to people that people feel a little uneasy and embarrassed about having their waist-to-hip ratio measured
1: well No worse than checking out some unknown pain that a person has or checking stool for blood to Check if a person might have potentially colon cancer People have no problem measuring their cholesterol even though it's I think invalid waist-to-hip ratio is less invasive than having to draw a tube of blood in somebody.
0: This is the simplest, least expensive thing that people could do for their health, is at least measure that.
1: Yeah. I think it would be a a great thing for everybody to do at home. You don't have to go to your doctor's office at all. And uh, you can start at least getting a question mark in your head whether you maybe need to do something to increase the likelihood of a healthy longevity.
0: You've been listening to Dr. Ron Rosedale. This is an extended interview from the KGNU Science Show that aired January 8, 2013. I'm Shelley Schlender. Find out more at howonearthradio.org.